0: The theme this morning is on the intentionality of Jesus. Can we just say that together? The intentionality of Jesus. Okay. Three weeks ago, we finished up a two-parter on the very religious and politically powerful leader among the Pharisees, Nicodemus. Uh, He had the finest pedigree available at the time. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a teacher of the law. And he came by night to meet with Jesus to ask him some questions some clarification on things, at least that's what we assume. Jesus tells him rather abruptly before he could even share why he was there, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Your Bible probably says born again, reborn, but in Greek it's the picture is actually being born from above. Now, Jesus was more interested in giving Nicodemus what he needed rather than answering the questions of why he was there or discussing the law with him. So he shredded his resume, right, in in a few words, Nicodemus, who was the leader among them coming to Jesus, Jesus just says, none of that matters unless you are born from above, born again. And we learn that salvation rests not in what we've done, not in how we've been born, what we've been born into, but solely on what God has done in Christ. Now, this morning, I'd like to introduce you to a woman who couldn't be more different from Nicodemus. He was powerful. She was not. He had a sterling reputation. Well, she not so much. He was the finest of the Jewish religion had to offer. This woman was an embarrassment to everyone that knew her. And yet they had something hugely in common. They were both in need of a Savior. John chapter 4. This long chapter and discussion with the woman at the well. We are not going to get through all this week. Rather, I want us to focus in on the intentionality of Jesus. We're going to come back and visit the conversation in large in two weeks. Um, John chapter 4. But I want you to just read. gives you a little bit of context. Familiar passage to us all, I'm sure. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew That the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That would be John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Galilee's region where he's from, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. So he had come on down to where John was baptizing in the south, in Judea. And now he he had been there, some estimate, they believe, According to the timeline, about eight months, he was there teaching and baptizing. So a lot has transitioned just in a chapter of John, okay? Eight months later, Jesus' his ministry is growing. He's baptizing more than John. He's now leaving back to where he's from. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then can you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Verse 1. When the Lord knew, he left. Here's a statement which is easy to miss. How many times have I read this passage and this has never grabbed me before? It's never jumped out to me before. Big deal, right? Jesus left. Every word, church. Every word. Every word is profitable for teaching. Every word is profitable for reproof. Every word is profitable for correction. Every word is profitable for training. How many of us want to get more out of our quiet time, our (coughs) devotions time? When are we reading scripture? I want to give you, this is a side note, I'm just going to go here for one minute, two minutes. Here are three things that you can do to gain more depth, or to get more spiritual, to keep yourself from missing spiritual nuggets. Number one, Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you. That's the starting point. We're going to get to this later in chapters 14 and 16, but it's the word that John uses to describe the Spirit of God is the parakletos. It's the helper, the comforter, the advocate, the one who comes along. And he says, as he writes, that he guides us into all truth. Jesus says that he will bring to remembrance all the things that I have taught to you. That's one of the functions and roles of the Spirit of God who dwells within us, is to open up God's Word and to reveal truth to us. Now, I alluded to this last week when we were talking about unity and dwelling together with um, the vine and how I don't believe that denominationalism is It's it's actually God's desire for the church. I didn't get into depth of it last week, um, and I'm not going to necessarily today either, but the truth of it is when there is denominational lines drawn because there's doctrinal disagreement, in my opinion, what it really boils down to is somebody is not hearing correctly from the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's essentially what it boils down to. God is not the author of confusion. He didn't write two different Bibles. He didn't write a verse that can be taken 15 different ways. He wrote His Word, and it speaks to truth. Now, we have denom- I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying I perfectly understand the Word of God. I strive to. I hope most pastors do. I hope all pastors do. I I don't think that's the case. But if there's disagreement, fundamentally what's happening is someone is looking at a verse with their own bias or they're looking at it incorrectly or perhaps we have the wrong English translations or even Greek or Hebrew transcripts. So God, God is here and we need the Holy Spirit's help to reveal these things to us. Say, God, I want to know what your word says. Commentaries are great. I go to them, I study them, I read them. They help me. But oftentimes I'll ask just the Holy Spirit first God, speak to me this. And if I can't get anywhere, sometimes I'll go to a commentary and say, Oh, that's interesting. And what's cool is you'll find that they'll come up with something different oftentimes. Does that mean that mine's wrong? Not necessarily. Perhaps theirs is wrong. But if you just read it and open yourself up and say, God, I want to hear from you directly, first and foremost you'll get some spiritual nuggets. Number two, slow down when reading the Word of God. I can't stress this enough. This is a familiar passage. Our tendency is to read it. Sometimes I'll find myself skipping phrases because I already know what it says. It's really hard to understand and get the full depth of it if you think you know what it says before you even read it. And I'm I'm not against, you know, I know some of you listen to devotions and they have, you know, your your phones can read it back to you, your iPads, whatever you do. That's great. You follow along in your Bible, you underline things, that's great. But I will say, one thing that I have found in my own life, and and I do that from time to time. One thing that I've found is that it is hard for you to almost process all of the information and keep up with the person who's reading it. Now I know you can pause and you can go back and reread a verse, but the tendency, the generalization, is that someone's reading to you and you want to just kind of follow along, and maybe you can accumulate information that fast. But I would suggest that even when you're studying a scripture, we're reading it's much, much slower than that. There came a woman of Samaria. I mean, you're really digesting each word. And the third thing that I would say is, read it again. Read it again and read it again, and read it again. And it doesn't matter if you're confused about a passage, you're stuck at a passage, I don't know what this means, well, read it again. It doesn't matter if you think you have all the understanding of it, read it again. When I, this is just my, a freebie from my perspective, when I'm opening up a passage before I even write down anything for a sermon and I'm preparing, I will read the passage five to ten times, and I will go get different translations. These are just little freebie helpful advices, take them leaving, Um, But if you do that, I'm confident that you're going to get more out of your personal devotional time. Ask the Holy Spirit. Slow down when reading the Word of God. Read it again and again. Back to the passage. When the Lord knew He left, what specifically jumped out at me? Here's this thing that I had skipped over I don't know how many times. When the Lord knew He left. That's it. And I wrestled with this for quite a while until I came up with two different possibilities. The first is that Jesus, I believe, is waiting for the Pharisees to hear about the progression of his ministry before he would go somewhere else. That's the, the, what John is sort of implying here. He says, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing more than John the Baptist, then and only then is when he left. So Jesus, there was something about him that was strategically waiting until These things had been fulfilled. Now remember, this is on the heels of, from chapter 3, verse 30, if you want to look back, you can. John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I talked about how this is the ushering in of the Christ Christ kingdom. John was preaching baptism, of repentance, saying the one who's coming after me, I can't even untie his sandals, he's going to do greater things, but I must get out of the way. This, this old covenant's passing away, and the new covenant must increase. He's here. He's right around the corner. And, and so, and John now, not the Baptist, but the author, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, he's writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. So he's, he's att- attaching this picture, eight months later, of him baptizing and saying, don't forget that John has just prophesied Jesus... This ministry has to grow and increase. And then you skip to the beginning of 4, and it says, when Jesus had heard, or when he knew, that the Pharisees knew he was baptizing more then he left. And I think John, again, he's presenting this case that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This wasn't just some movement. John is saying, you've got to understand that this was prophesied about, By this man who was doing great things that the Pharisees sort of didn't like. They were jealous of. And then Jesus, fast forward some time, is actually doing these things. When Jesus understood it, it was at that moment that he left. You remember the Pharisees, they came to John the Baptist. We read about this to question him whether he was the Christ. And he said no. He denied it, but he spoke and testified that Jesus was the Son of God. You can read that in chapter 1, verse 34. We know that the Pharisees didn't care for John's popularity, but they particularly did not like this Jesus who had been heralded the Son of God. John the Baptist was baptizing and taking away some of their their influence and authority. Now this Jesus was doing even more so. Now there's two of them. And that brings us to another possibility, or perhaps it's both of these things, that Jesus simply wanted to draw himself away because it was not yet his time. Two things here. Not yet his time for what? Well, chapter 5, again, we'll get this when we get there, maybe go over it a little bit more, but if you want to look at verse 18, you can. His time to be killed. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So these religious zealots, Jews... Just a few, does the next chapter are wanting to kill Jesus because he was not honoring the Sabbath the way that they believed that he should. So he drew himself away. The second thing we see, one more chapter, John chapter 6, verse 15, they wanted to actually make him a king. Do you remember this? Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain. So chapter 4, Jesus leaves and departs for Galilee. Chapter 5, they want to kill him. Chapter 6, they want to make him king. There's a lot of things going on with these Jewish people. Now in Matthew's gospel, it's recorded that John the Baptist rebuked the Pharisees. They came to him. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, it says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They came down to the watering hole and John calls them out and says, who warned you about the wrath to come? They were coming there for this outward symbol is what is being said. Well, if everyone else is doing it, we're going to do it, I guess. It'll make us look good to all the people that we minister over. And from that I gather that John's preaching and conversion of the people was weakening the Pharisees' influence and authority, as i said several times now. So they had to deal with not only John doing this, but Jesus, but even on a larger scale. So I don't believe it's particularly far-fetched to imagine that they were envious of Jesus. And so, nonetheless, when Jesus knew, he left. Jesus conscious of the Father's purpose for him, perceived that it was time to leave. And so he left. And this, in my opinion, is the first exhibit of his intentionality. He only left after the Pharisees had heard about his ministry's increase. He didn't leave a day too early. He didn't leave a day too late. Jesus' actions were intentional. Here's the challenge What if we lived every single day under the guidance of God like that? God, where would you have me go? Today, this hour. What would you have me to do? Who would you have me speak to? What would you have me to study? God, would you have me to stay here another day? Or do you have something for me tomorrow that is different? That's how Jesus lived his life. Every day, moment by moment, following and perfectly tuned in with the Holy Spirit in the Father's will from above. As believers, we stand on this preamble, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. What's the next phrase? I no longer live, but Christ lives in who's supposed to be living. Isn't isn't that something that we sort of subscribe to? That should be the declaration of our heart, right? Our heart cry is, God, I don't want to live and do things my way anymore. I want you to live through me. I want your decisions to be the things that I'm doing. I want you to tell me what to do and how to live my life. Why my old self has been crucified and I want to live for you. And yet, I don't believe that's really our reality. I wonder if we're willing to do whatever he asks of us. Here's the catch. When he asks us. I'm constantly reminding my boys that obedience isn't only doing what is asked, but it's doing it right away. Amen? Amen. Will that preach? Internalize it. Secondly, when he asks us to do something, will we even hear him? Are we too busy with what we believe we should be doing? This is the intentionality of Jesus, being tapped into the Father. Now, verse 1, back to verse 1. Notice the method that Jesus was taking here. First he made disciples, and then he baptized them. I think oftentimes we get this order backwards. We think that we've got to go out, we can convert people, we're going to baptize them in water, and then we've got to disciple them and mature them. But here's what it actually, Scripture, indicates we ought to be doing. Is... Making disciples, then we baptize them, and then we teach them all the things to observe. That's what the Great Commission is. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Now, we know, on one hand, that Philip baptized the Ethiopian the same day that he received the gospel, but we should not fail to consider those words words of Christ to us. Because I think this is perhaps a guardrail for us in how we are to only baptize those that seem to be taking seriously this claim of faith. Not just baptizing willy-nilly, or on the flip side, ignoring them. There's a responsibility after baptizing to teach them. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was baptizing and making disciples. Making disciples and then baptizing them, excuse me. So we ought to make sure that those that are baptized are, are not only making this decision for themselves, but are sincere and they understand their pursuit. And this is an ordinance of the church, the baptism. It's an ordinance also, what's the other one? The Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Paul writes and talks about how some were doing it in an unworthy manner, and because of that, they were sick or even dying. And so the ordinances of the church's, church are reserved for God's people to do with sincerity, Likewise, I would make the argument for baptism. It ought to be held in the same regard. Here's the order. Make disciples. It says Jesus was making and baptizing. Make disciples, baptize, and then continue to teach them. There must be order within God's house. Now in verse 2, we're told that Jesus himself was not doing the baptism. There are no details around that statement, yet some scholars I read suggest that perhaps it was because it was not par- proper for him to baptize in his own name. I think that's a baseless speculation, but others have suggested that perhaps it was a m- more important for him to be teaching than to be baptizing. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 1.17, but I think there's also another point to be made, that Jesus, perhaps having discerned the hearts of men, didn't want some to value his baptism more than the baptism of his disciples. That's what they were experiencing in the church of Corinth. Paul saying, I'm glad I haven't baptized any of you. Some of them were saying they were part of Apollos or Paul or Cephas, which is Peter. Saying, I don't want any part of it. I'm just going to stick to the word. doesn't matter who baptized you. You get the same Holy Spirit. Okay? We don't really know, but specifically, John tells us that Jesus was not doing the baptizing. Now, the thrust of this passage is not about baptism, so let's move on. He's heading for Galilee after about eight months, but he does so in a very peculiar way. Verse 4. I like how the King James Version puts it. And he must needs go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria. Now, before we look into the specifics of the second exhibit of Jesus' intentionality, first one, when to leave. Something happened. He got to a point where his ministry had increased above John the Baptist. He left right on time. Before we get to the second one, keep in mind that Jesus has only left after that has been fulfilled, the first one. Now where does God lead Jesus through? Samaria. Time for a geography lesson. Imagine three regions of what we call, you know, the Middle East, the Israel nation now. It's more than just Israel, but on the top we have Galilee on the coast of the Mediterranean. Then below that we've got Samaria, and below that we've got Judea. You don't actually have to pass through Samaria to get up to Galilee where Jesus was from. The Pharisees, no doubt, and most Jews of the day we're told by historian early historian josephus would actually cross the jordan river then they would head north through a land called perea they would cross the jordan river again so as to avoid going through this middle section of samaria josephus says it adds about 3 days journey 3 days to your journey so it'd be a 5 day walk instead of 2 so when it says jesus has needs to go through samaria it's not talking about there's no other way to get around these mountains You shall not pass. No, he's saying there is an appointment, there's a divine appointment in Samaria. Jesus could have taken that other route. Now, perhaps a little history will help us at this point, if you're not familiar with the Samaritans and who they were. The Jews and the Samaritans disliked each other. That's an understatement. This goes all the way back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered Israel and they took the ten northern tribes. Remember, Israel was split at this time. They took the ten northern tribes and they brought most of them, many of them, back into captivity. The thing was, we don't read about this often, we don't think about this, the Assyrians were a huge empire and they were bringing back people from all over the place. And they were settling them together. And they did this strategically and on purpose so that the people that were coming from their homelands would lose their sense of identity and culture. They were intentionally commingling them, so that they would lose their language and they would have to take on the common language which they were speaking. They would have to adopt a certain form of currency. They didn't care about religion or any of those things, so they got to keep parts of the Jewish faith. So after a few generations of these people, what were born were these half-breed sort of Samaritans. That's what they were known as, half-breeds. They were half Jewish and half other stuff. And the Jews did not take to liking that too much. Okay? So we fast forward about 400 years. Sanballat, he's the governor of Samaria. Remember, Zerubbabel's back in Jerusalem. Now he's gotten permission from the king. He rebuilds the temple. Sanballat's there. He's discouraging all them. He's, He's trying to foil their whole plan. He's jealous of them. They're half Jews, they're not allowed in the temple. So he actually issues and makes a request to the governor of Assyria, the king of Assyria, and he says, can I build a place to worship like the temple in Jerusalem over on Mount Gerizim? And so the king allows him. So this is the context and the buildup for which we'll get to next two weeks when Jesus is talking about we don't worship here or there. They had built their own place of worship because they were not allowed in the temple. So there was a lot of animosity between these two groups. They developed their own language, these Samaritans. They had their own version of the Old Testament or the Torah, the first five books. So there was a lot of hatred. And that's where you can hopefully kind of see why Jesus' parable about the Jew being beat up along the road where the hero was a Samaritan was so foreign to them. This half-breed man taking care of a Jew... It wouldn't have happened. To the Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Now, the Pharisees, as I said, would not have gone through that region. They would have been caught dead there. Yet, who do we see intentionally go through Samaria? Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. He had needs to go through Samaria. The Father had a specific plan for the Son. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and he had to pass through Samaria. This is the intentionality of Jesus. You see, when we know God's plan and purpose for our lives, when we allow that to shape our purpose and our approach, it's from that place that we can make decisions that will affect good in his kingdom. If we're just doing things on our own plans, our own ideas, listen up. We'll miss out on potential salvation. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to go the long way, or in this case, the evil way. But with God, all things make sense. Jesus knew that there was something far more important than all the stereotypes of the Samaritans. So he went to Galilee in a peculiar way. Verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw the water. Here we see the humanity of Jesus. He's weary from his journey, It's the middle of the day about noon it's hot all the other ladies no doubt have already drawn their water they would come in the cool of the morning or they would come again maybe perhaps even just at the uh, the cool of the evening but not this woman it's the middle of the day she was the outcast of the city she had to come when there was no one there so here jesus makes a divine appointment and he's sitting at the well waiting for this woman who shows up perfectly on time Do you believe that Jesus arrived at random? Or do you believe he was doing it on purpose? See, because that's that's a big question to consider. Because if you think that it was by accident, then we detract from John's statement, he has needs to go through Samaria. But if we believe that Jesus was being intentional, then we must apply his way of living to our own lives. I don't know who... Said something to this effect about the outer space. It's terrifying to think. This might have been Dawkins. That um, it's equally terrifying to think that there are no aliens in space as it is that there are something to that effect. Saying because if if we are, then you're considering the gravity of how big space is and that there are there's nobody out there. But it's also equally it's it's fearful to think about the fact that there are other creatures. Well, I'm not. I want to get too sidetracked by this, but this is. This is how it is for us. We have to think that equally these this words here have effect, they should have effect on our lives. Either this is just John being silly and, and we have to throw away parts of the scripture which is a terrible thought. Or we have to look at the scripture and read the truth behind it and understand that John has written this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to guide us into our way of living. And That's terrifying. That Jesus was so surrendered, he would do something that wouldn't make sense to go after the one. And yet, I don't think that's what we do in our own lives. Nothing happens by chance in this story. Every detail is part of the outworking of God's will. And that, I think, is hugely important. Jesus was about the Father's business. He himself said in 829... For I always do those things that are pleasing to him. That is intentional living. Every moment of Jesus living for the Father. In the Lord's Prayer, John 17, Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. I believe Jesus was not only on a mission to bring salvation to the woman at the well, but he was also going after all that the Father had given him we'll read about these in a few moments but there was more than just the woman he was going after let us not fail to recognize that it, it was jesus who went to a strange location at a strange time because of he intended to meet with a woman it wasn't the woman who came to jesus looking for anything all she wanted was water it's hot I haven't got my water for the day jesus showed up for her Here's the point. Sometimes you have to go to Samaria to reach the Samaritans. And from this, we can take in a very important principle for evangelism. Reaching people for Christ is not always comfortable, sometimes it might be difficult. Just as the firefighter has to go into a burning house to rescue those inside, he doesn't just stand outside, Come on out! Your house is burning! Sometimes you have to put yourself into a position that is inconvenient or unsafe. We'll be safe if God has you do it. Well, at least accomplish His will. There have been plenty that have martyred. But we must be willing to go where people are if we want to reach them at all. I've said this before. I don't know when this happened, if it was a gradual thing. I'm not even picking specifically on this church, but just in general in church, there was an idea that the drunkard from town is going to waddle his way in on Sunday mornings and he's going to meet Christ. And so that's what church was for a long time. It was presenting the gospel every single week having an altar call, and there's a place for that. We should absolutely have a gospel message. And I hope you've noticed that whenever I see a visitor, I do my absolute best to give an altar call and tie in a salvation prayer in some way, shape, or form. It'd be very easy to do. In this message, we have the word eternal life. I would do that on the fly. It's what I do, generally. Okay? But the truth is, most non-believers are not coming in to churches on Sunday mornings. And I said this last week, the assembly, ecclesia, or ecclesia, is for God's people. That's what the design was. The first day of the week, they gathered together, and they did this in memory and honoring of Christ Jesus resurrected from the dead. Well, guess what? It wasn't just the first day. The ecclesia was gathering together every day of the week for fellowship and breaking of bread and for prayer. The people of God were gathering together to share what God had been doing in their lives. The church for a long time has just sort of sat back and hoped that people would come in and we've gotten away from evangelism. Our role as believers is to go out and make disciples and baptize them. Teach them in the church. Teach them out of the church too. But we've got to go out and to go get them. Jesus went after the woman. He didn't take the easy way out. He didn't pander to the prevailing Jewish prejudice against the Samaritans. He had to go through Samaria because he wanted to reach this woman, and he wanted her to reach the whole village. As the story concludes, the woman accepts Christ, his prophetic declaration, and fearlessly saves many Samaritans as a result. Skip on down to verse 39 of chapter 4. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told... Here's a whole another separate note, too. Not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a woman. Okay. And you know the story. She's you know, a, a prostitute. She'd been with five, and now she's not even the husband." I mean, the perfect remedy here for nobody listening to her, giving an ear to anything she has to say. A Samaritan, a woman, a prostitute. And look what it says in 39. Many of the Samaritans believe in him because of the word of the woman. It doesn't say because of Jesus. Because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. So many became Christians or believed in Christ because of her word. He stayed for two days and taught some more, and even more got saved. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They got it. These half-breeds that nobody loved. Only because Jesus had needs to go through Samaria. It's not bad for an ex social leper who wasted years trying to find her identity and relationships and status. Do you know he can make all things new? This chapter reminds us that God can use the lowliest of men to sow the highest good for his glory and in are bringing our communities closer to Jesus. And as for being a catalyst for change in new arenas of influence, I would challenge us all to dare to seek God like no one else, that we would live intentionally like no one else. See, when we believe and understand that it is God who establishes and orders our steps, when you trust him to get you where you need to be, even if that means going a few extra miles or going the hard way, he will bring about far more good than we can invent on our own. The thing is, we have to live intentionally. Perhaps you're feeling lowly and ostracized like the woman was, no doubt. Well, God can use you like He used her. She was a nothing in her society, but Jesus was not phased by her sin. Are you hearing that today? Jesus simply preached the truth in love. But don't miss the fact that he went after her, not the other way around. He loves the sinner. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Perhaps you've ignored someone who looks too common, who acts too common, who has too much sin in their life. Listen, we need to remember that God can use them mightily for his kingdom. Whatever stereotypes or mess someone may be into, understand that Jesus came to tear down those dividing walls. It's all level at the foot of the cross. In fact, the testimony of the radically saved sinner often bears more witness to Christ than a religious nut who's never strayed. When we consider Jesus' intentionality, his strategy to free this woman from bondage and to give her hope, how could we not be excited? See, like Jesus, our desire should be to restore broken hearts, To pray and hope that our village would be saved. We should want to ignite change in those who doubt their worth. But above all, we should want to accept the call to lead others to a greater understanding of who God is. But we will never be able to accomplish this if we do not allow God, the Holy Spirit, to work through us. And as we leave here this morning, look to Jesus. Live intentionally with every breath that you have. May the truth, that truth, that Jesus was intentional, And everything he did was on purpose to bring glory to God. May that stimulate you to labor for him in the way that he did for us on earth.